Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 24th episode of the Bad MotoGP show. Right here, we have uh, Axel Pedersen. And uh, Axel is a motorcycle racer, uh, formerly in Thailand, and now you're in Australia, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you've been joining me already on the podcast after the Thailand GP, last year in MotoGP. So now we are here to discuss the World Superbike race in Phillip Island. And for me, it's now the third straight day of getting up pretty early because uh, now we have the time difference between Australia and and Europe. So thank you much for thank you very much for being here. And uh, yeah, let's get right into it. Uh, were you at the track live, or did you watch at home? Uh, I, w I watched at home this round. Uh, unfortunately, I I had an invite from uh, Yamaha Thailand Racing Team to uh, head out and see their inaugural race in World Supersport. But um, you know, the flights were just like completely full to um, to Melbourne, so I wasn't able to make it. Unfortunately, that's sad. That's really sad. Where are you right now? Uh, I'm in Sydney. Okay. And uh, how did it uh, came along that you uh, are no longer in Thailand? Well, um, basically, I got uh, accepted to uh, a university in Australia to do uh, engineering, and I'm hoping to continue that and pursue uh, engineering here. So in the future, I can get a job within uh, one of the teams in either the Grand Prix paddock or the uh, World Superbike paddock. Yeah, so hopefully you will be a great source of information in the future. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be, that'd be good. Yeah, so um, let's talk a little bit about the races. Obviously, Ducati dominated from top to bottom. They won all three races in the World SBK with Alvaro Bautista. They won both races in in World Supersport with Nicolo Bulega, which uh, were wild races. And uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, about the Superbike class. What's going on with Ducati? How are they so dominant? Well, they've just really built on last year. You know, Alvaro's like built his head. He's he's just really, you know, he's not messed up with the head anymore. After 2019, you know, he went to Honda and Honda is basically just therapy for riders at this point. You know, you can see Johan Mir heading there in MotoGP. It's, it's really not a place you want to end up at the moment. Of course, they want to return to their days of former glory, but that's not where they're at right now. Anyway, Alvaro, his first season back at Ducati last year, and it's safe to say um, Jonathan Ray and Toprak were uh, were a playing catch-up. That uh, Ducati V4R last year was an absolute weapon, and uh, I don't think it's got any slower this year. But did uh, Yamaha and Kawasaki somehow close the gap, or is it just that Ducati is so far ahead? I believe it's actually gone the other way. And I believe the Ducati bike has gotten faster. And the gap between Kawasaki and Ducati and Yamaha and Ducati is larger than we've ever seen it in the last 10 years. So basically, it's like MotoGP. Yep, except there's not eight Ducatis. There's only uh, five, I believe. Yeah, but the other Ducatis, they weren't as dominant over the whole weekend. I mean, Rinaldi no. was good. Rinaldi was good, but I, I think looking at that, it proves that, you know, Bautista's not just making it up on the straights. He can ride a bike. And last year, I was a little bit in denial. I was like, oh, no, it's just because he's really, really light. But I'm I'm beginning to believe that he can ride a bike, you know, when I look at his old MotoGP results, when he actually was, you know, 
hidden there, but still finishing like fourth and stuff. Yeah. So uh, we briefly talked about the whole engine situation because you talked about the RPM limits that Kawasaki has a different RPM limit than Yamaha and Ducati. So yeah, what's going on with the Ducati engine? Yeah, the world uh, World Superbike is a little bit interesting where Ducati actually have the highest RPM limit at 16,100 RPM, which you look at them and they're the fastest bike on the straight. And um, whoever makes the rules um, has not adjusted that. I don't want to throw some public shade right off the gate, but um, the second highest RPM limit is Honda. And I believe that they, they really need the... Uh, the high RPM limit because they're struggling. Next is BMW, and then it's Yamaha, and then it's Kawasaki. Now, Kawasaki has a 14,600 RPM limit, and compared to Ducati's 16,100, that's quite a large difference, especially when uh, Kawasaki, they're running the inline-four engine, and Ducati's got that nice, smooth V4. It really is, um, I'd say, a little bit imbalanced at the moment. Yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> and um, because I'm new to Superbike, I just watched my first uh, weekend. Uh, what's what's the whole point of having RPM limit or different RPM limits anyways? Why can't you have one RPM, um, RPM limit which works for every manufacturer? Like I believe they have MotoGP. There's no kind of balance of performance in MotoGP. So yeah. what's actually going on there? Why are they shifting, uh, shifting the performance or, or adjusting the performance of the bikes? So when clearly Ducati is now the best bike and Kawasaki was the best bike uh, a couple of years ago, so yeah. why are they still suffering from that? I think these RPM limits are slightly a few years behind. You know, you look at Kawasaki's dominance, basically 2019 or 2020, like and before. You know, they won six, probably I think seven, actually, uh, world championships in a row with Jonathan Ray and I think Tom Sykes. You know, there's no, there was no doubt that uh, that bike was definitely the best package back then, and. Dorna or the FIM have not yet updated those regulations accordingly. And you look at something like Honda, Honda still have the second highest RPM limit, but they're, you know, they're doing a lot better than they were, you know, when Alvaro Bautista was at Honda, you know, you look at Ika Lekawona and he's fighting up there for, you know, the podium ish, like within the, within the top six sort of battle there. And that's definitely not where that Honda was. So I think there's definitely some more like scaling to do. And why don't you just have the manufacturers and let them build the best bike possible and leave them alone with RPM and all of this stuff? In the end, you've got the two competing um, like engine designs with the V4 and the um, inline four and a lot of like the Japanese manufacturers don't want to move over to the V4. And previously the inline four was a superior engine model, but um, Ducati has found out a way to get that um, engine lighter. Cause that used to be way too heavy. Hence the lack of RPM limit. Cause it would never be as fast on the straights, but Ducati has lightened that engine to a point where it's now viable for racing. And the reason why world Superbike has that scaling is because they always wanted to keep racing close because World Superbike is sort of like a little bit of a B-Tech series compared to MotoGP, you know, and they want to capitalize more on, 
you know, they when people look at MotoGP, they see you know bad racing now with the with the winglets and the front tire overheating, and that they want to draw people to World Superbike where the racing's close, and it's like guys throwing Moto three bikes around except they're on superbikes. I thought that the battle for fourth place in race two was amazing. I mean, everybody basically was battling from P4 like to P10 or whatever. I can't remember. Yeah, that's kind of how World Superbike should be. That used to be the battle for the lead with Toprak and Jonathan Ray and Scott Redding back when he was still at Ducati. But now with Bautista, I think, you know, it's... It's just the the fight for second place in the championship. And I don't want to draw that conclusion already because I want to have a great season as a spectator, but I think that's might be that might be what we're looking at. I mean, I guess that the other riders will be better at different tracks. I mean, I remember the the beginning of the MotoGP season uh, last year where everybody thought, oh, Ducati isn't any good, or at least the GP22 isn't any good. And after time, they grew into the bike and uh, we had a, at the end, kind of close battle for the championship. Yeah. And it's a long season. A lot of uh, stuff can happen. And therefore, I believe that um, we shall not overreact from one race there. But I agree with you. It looks like Ducati uh, has hit the ground running. And I don't know how the character of the bike works in a different track, which is maybe not as fast and flowing as yeah. Philip Island. But uh, yeah, I, I would agree with you that from, from the first um, race, you could draw that conclusion. Yeah, I, I'd say another reason we've seen such dominance by Ducati this weekend is Number one, Alvaro Bautista, he's a Phillip Island specialist. You know, he's won six out of the last seven races with Ducati he's had there. And also, you know, he's at the height of his um, game right now. You know, he just overtook uh, Troy Corsa in terms of Grand Slams. Now, a Grand Slam in World Superbike is when you win all three races on the same weekend. So that's really a big uh, feat. And I, I believe he now has the most Grand Slams out of any World Superbike rider in history. Yeah, that's that's good, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> good for him. And yeah, good good for him, not good for the competition. And uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Toprak and uh, the whole Yamaha thing, because um, I've heard stuff that the Yamaha is a little bit underpowered compared to the other manufacturers, like the same stuff they ha what happened in MotoGP. And um, I've also heard that not the top rock is not necessarily the best at Phillip Island. There are other tracks who suit him a little bit more. So what do you make of uh, of him and his chance for the championship, especially after this bad race too, where he got yeah. taken out? In the end, it's it's top rack. And if there's a gap, he'll go for it. And I, I look forward to seeing that for the rest of the season. He is a braking specialist and Phillip Island is fast flowing and only around one or two heavy braking zones. And I don't think watching the TV coverage, I saw Top Rack pull one stoppy the entire weekend. And that's so unlike him, you know, it, even into Miller corner, it's such a um, braking zone that's on a lean angle and he's good at that. And he was making the majority of his moves throughout the weekend there, but he really needs Indonesia right now. And luckily for him, they'll be there in, you know, just three days. Yeah. So uh, another weekend of, waking up early and messing up my sleep rhythm. 
<laughs> yeah, well, for me, it's actually perfect time. I'll be watching the races at like 6, 7 p.m. I'll be chilling out. Yeah, yeah, for you, it's the best. I really enjoy those uh, races in America because they're in prime time in Europe. So, yep. yeah, I, I understand where you get it. Where I'm not looking from. forward to the European season when I'm going to have to stay up till 2 to 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah, that sucks. I mean, I'm not uh, trying to complain too much because there are people like you who have it a lot worse and have to get up early for the majority of the races. So, yeah, or yeah. stay up late, whatever you want, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but back to Yamaha, do you think that on a better suiting track for him, Topra can can fight for the championship? Yes, I believe so, but the calendar is pretty much the same as it was last year, and overall, Bautista came out on top, and if Yamaha is not going to make those developments and those advancements, then I don't see why they're expecting their story to go any differently. How does this whole development thing actually works in World Superbike? Because you have the production bike as your base setting, basically, but then obviously it's not a, a production bike anymore. No, it's, it's not. But, a production bike. but is there what's like the rule there, what you can develop, what you can't develop, and how much do you have to use your, your production bike as a base there? Well, it's it's my understanding that they can basically uh, just take the street engine and modify every single part in it as long as the baseline is the street engine. And I, I'm sure there's a, there's a few um, minor things that they're not allowed to adjust, of course, capacity, but there might be some things like materials that they're not allowed to use within the engine. You know, otherwise the crankshafts could become really, really light and that could give, you know, someone like Ducati a, a much bigger advantage. Although I'm not 100% sure. We can look at um, things like BMW. You know, in the past couple of years, they've had the S1000. And now you look at their bike and it looks completely different to what it was two years ago. Yeah, but now they brought the new M1000RR. Yeah, the M1000 is, is like, like the, the further iteration of the, the S1000, which is basically predominantly for only track use. Although it is still sold for the street as per uh, world superbike regulations you know you must sell a minimum amount of bikes for the street and how does the whole aero thing and chassis work uh, is it the same like that you have to use your production bike as a base there or is it just it has to look like the production bike it it has to look like the production bike of course they're using carbon kevlar fairings you know they want to keep the weight down street fairings are very heavy you know they're made of plastic they've got headlights they've got all sorts of fun stuff but even ducati for this year they have a new front fairing and that's giving rinaldi more confidence the new front fairing on the v4r looks for uh, looks uh, much more similar to what was on the uh, v4s in past couple of years you know more of a, a wider wings at the front and um the actual visor is is larger so for someone like rinaldi who's a little bit bigger than bautista He can fit in there and tuck in better. Do you have to have the wings on your production bike in order to use them in Superbike? Because yeah. in in the Yamaha R1, which you could buy on the street, there is none. On the Kawasaki, I don't believe there's any uh, wings. But the BMW is like the best example because they have these big ass wings. And yeah. they look like the Ducati wings in MotoGP. So... 
Um, but they have this on the production back as well. So you have to use this model. You can't just slap wings on it, for example, on a Yamaha. Now, yeah, exactly. You don't exactly. have them on the production back. Yeah, Ducati is yeah, a great okay. example because they've been they've been doing wings on production bikes for for ages. And Kawasaki, with their new front fairing, they've implemented like the so the front fairing is sort of like its own wing. You know, it's much more of a steep angle, sharper edges, more aerodynamic. And Yamaha are the only ones who really haven't done anything aero-wise yet. I mean, they haven't necessarily done too much aero-wise in MotoGP. So, what do you expect? Yeah. I mean, if you if you would have to uh, pick one, Ducati is obviously the one when they used Arrow back in what was it, two thousand and ten or two thousand and eleven, with yeah, way uh, on the test for the first time. They were the first ones who really introduced them into racing, and uh, yeah, so they they know a thing or two about Arrow. Yeah. And if you look at the amount of resources they pour into motorcycle racing. It's obvious that they have the best bike, that they have the best engine, that they have the best aerodynamics. And uh, yeah, I hope that the other manufacturers will catch up a little bit because obviously we want close racing. We don't want what was in F1 for a long time that Mercedes is at the top and yeah. nobody could challenge them. So yeah. And uh, the last thing I would like to ask you uh, on the whole thing of uh, World Superbike is the electronics. Is every manufacturer developing their own electronics or do they have uh, spec electronics like they do have in MotoGP? Uh, they, they do have spec electronics, yeah. Okay. Like they have so a spec ECU, the but they, they have a spec ECU, but they are allowed to um, tune that how they please. So they can still do their own maps regarding like power delivery and stuff like that and in terms of engine brake you know top rack doesn't really need that much engine brake but someone like bautista you know he really needs the engine brake so they're allowed to you know scale that to their own um riding styles still okay so that is a point which hasn't anything to do with the production bikes and the development there so they have the spec electronic everybody has the same and they can maneuver within those uh regulations and the tires, uh, how different are they from MotoGP tires? Oh, Pirelli tires are completely different to Michelin. Like you look at someone like Petrucci, you know, he uh, is still very much getting used to those Pirelli tires. Pirelli tires are much softer in terms of the compound. And Michelin tires are very, you know, solid for those, you know, those big long braking zones in MotoGP where they're, you know, decelerating really fast and they have the really solid front tire. In, in World Superbike, they have a much softer front tire, so they have to run the pressures a little bit higher. But this also allows them to have more confidence in the corners. But it's it's kind of a um, a sacrifice. You know, if you want that with the Pirelli tires, if you want that braking stability, you have to run the front tire a lot harder. And if you want the corner speed, like at Phillip Island, you know, you run the front a little bit softer. Now, the thing with, with that is, like, you see riders like Toprak really struggling at Phillip Island. And that could be because his front tire is a little bit lower than what he's used to, but that's the only way to make the bike work around Phillip Island. So he has to use the harder front tire in order to get his braking stability, no, which he is still his. Uses, he still uses the soft, uh, the soft tire, but he just has to raise the pressure up to get it to work the way he wants okay. it to work. Oh, okay. And the rear tire, I've heard that the Pirelli rear tire on the broadcast, they talked about it, is really good for like the first 
three laps, it has an insane amount of grip. Yeah. Then it drops, but it keeps this drop for a long time then that it's not, not necessarily too grippy, but it's on a lower level, but very steady over the course of the race. Yeah. So Pirelli um, have brought like qualifying tires. So they have the SCX and the SC0. So these are super soft tires. Now the SCX is only viable for maybe the super pole session where it's like one flying lap. In colder races on start-stop tracks, you know, you'll see some riders actually race on the SCX, but only in the short distance race because it will not last the full way. And once it does drop off, it will drop off to about 80%, 70% grip, but it will stay constant there. And how this uh, how does this differ from the MotoGP rear tire? Yeah, well, MotoGP rear tires, it, again, it's the Michelin compound, so it's a little bit harder. So it, it, it keeps its... Um, it keeps its like grip a little bit longer, which allows the riders to work the tires. But unfortunately, if it's like a, a cold day, it, it takes a while to get heat into the hard uh, to the tires. And you see like a lot of riders crashing on hard tires, you know, during you know free practice four or something during race simulation, where it just gets way too cold, and then they just either tuck the front using the hard front or lose the rear or high side using the hard rear. What I really enjoy about World Superbike is that the bike is moving so much. Uh, there were scenes where Toprak and Agita were sliding with the rear um, out of the second to last corner in Phil Island, I believe. And it looks just amazing. And in MotoGP, you don't get it anymore because their bikes are basically on rails. Everything has to be perfect. Has, everything has to be smooth. And I really enjoy that in Superbike, you have these, these uh, bikes who are actually working underneath the rider who are spectacular. So that's a really great takeaway I, I got from the uh, Superbike race this weekend. Yeah, exactly. Like... Just watching them, you know, I could sit there all day and just watch Top Rack and Dommies spin some laps around Phillip Island just with those close-ups and slow-mos on the rear tires spinning up and smoking. It's it's just something great. And it's it's what, as a spectator, we love to see. You know, in MotoGP, it's, you know, it's breathtaking, but it's really hard to get a sense of speed when you don't see little moments like that. You know, you see Top Rack have tiny little moments but still pull a fast lap. When in MotoGP, you know, you spin up the rear just a tad and then your lap's gone. I always uh, think that lap times for spectators are so irrelevant because when MotoGP went to Phillip Island, they uh, were lapping at 1 minute 27, I believe, and Superbike is more like 1 minute 29 or 1 minute 30, so they're about 2 to 3 seconds slow. So... I would rather have two to three seconds slow with close racing with spectacular bikes than just MotoGP bikes who work perfectly on what they do and are faster, but you don't get the spectacular aspect of, of it. So yeah, I don't, um, I don't mind that they're slower when there's more spectacular, when they uh, have close racing and all of this. And I really enjoyed this. This was like a big takeaway from uh, Superbike this weekend for me. Yeah. That it's, it's spectacular. It's great to watch. And at the end of the day, you don't care if it's 1 minute 27 or 1 minute 30. Yeah, as long as you, know, you can see that they're going flat out. That's what I love. The, the, the view for the viewership, it's like when you see them just absolutely on rails. You know, it's it's really hard to see that in MotoGP these days. I think 
And a great example of, you know, bikes on rails is like watching a series like British Superbike, where in the Superbike class there, they have no assists whatsoever, no rider aids. And that just makes for absolutely insanely close racing. You know, it's it's all in the rider's right wrist. And, uh, and I think, you know, that's the essence of Superbike racing, where it you know, the riders are all about, you know, controlling that slide and no electronics, no aids, just raw horsepower and power delivery. Yeah, that's basically what Remy said uh, that they should do. They should uh, strip the bikes of all electronics and just race them. And uh, yeah, I would like to get a little bit more into BSB because of that, but I don't know how to watch it, so I have to figure it out and you know, not necessarily want to make a, a third motorcycle, motorcycle racing series part of my life now oh, because no. this shit's getting out of hand. No, I'm, yeah. I'm on all of them. I, I'm on uh, BSB, Moto America, World Superbike, Australian Superbike and MotoGP. I'm, I'm just glued to the TV every weekend. <laughs> oh, and yeah. ESBK. Uh, I forgot about <laughs> that one. Yeah, yeah. Tell my uh, girlfriend about it. That every weekend we're just now watching motorcycle racing and can't do anything differently. <laughs> That's just life, you know. <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. But uh, back to Yamaha. What uh, what I wanted uh, to know when when you're looking at Yamaha, what are the areas where they're lacking? Like obviously horsepower, but what else should they improve in order to to be competitive? The Yamaha Yamaha's chassis. I actually tested an R1 not too long ago. It's it's a great chassis, you know, compared to the Honda. I rode the Aprilia RSV4. I rode the Honda Fireblade, and I rode the R1 all on the same day, all on slicks, like within about 30 minutes of each other. So I could really get a direct comparison. And hopping off the CBR1000, which was a face melting speed, absolutely crazy top speed, you know, up to 300 kilometers an hour in fifth gear. Just, I didn't even need to use sixth on the one kilometer straight in Buriram. And, you know, stepping up into the braking zone, you know, my helmet's like pushing against my face. It's it's insane and much more appreciation for what they do. But then I hopped on the R1 and it, it felt like I was back on my 400 in terms of corner speed. Like I could really corner that and have so much confidence in the corners. And now I can see kind of the essence of their MotoGP bike compared to Honda's bike. You know, Honda felt like an absolute dog to ride. Like, and then at, getting on the Yamaha, just it felt more relaxing. Like, honestly, and their their bike is it's it's really well made in terms of the chassis. How similar are the World Superbike bikes in comparison to the street bikes? When you obviously they're different obviously but how much of the dna stays the same for example when you ride a, a cbr and you say it's more of a dog or when you ride the r1 and it's more of a smooth operator how do you um, how much of the dna stays the same when you go into a world superbike yeah well the chassis is it's it's it's, a, it's the chassis you know I, i believe they are allowed to change the swing arm so that can help things but um yamaha actually have to stiffen um top rack's frame and add like um, about five to 10 extra millimeters of steel at the front of the frame near the triple clamp that holds the front forks in. Because in the beginning, when he started braking on that Yamaha, he was braking so hard that he was actually bending the frame of the Yamaha R1. So that is some adjustments they had to make. And the Honda, 
in the end, the, just the angle of the forks, the way the chassis is, the stiffness of uh, Honda's chassis from factory, it, it's what gives it its characteristics. You know, the power delivery, it's very uh, rapid and acceleration is crazy, but out of the corners, it's it's quite hard to handle. You need to, you know, play with the electronics to make sure it's working properly. Obviously, with Remy now at Yamaha, I'm a little bit more interested in what actually goes on at Yamaha. Um, what did you make of his weekend? Oh, Remy! <laughs> oh, he at least at least he's got it out of the way now. I mean, that's the one rule in all of motorsport: don't crash into your teammate. And unfortunately for Remy, you know he did that. And oh, I. I, when I was watching on TV, I swore, and I was with my eighty-year-old grand, uh, my eighty-year-old uncle at the time. Sorry, and he was like, "What happened? What happened?" He thought, he thought something bad really happened, and I had to explain to him that, you know, my favorite rider Remy had uh, crashed straight into his teammate, and I, I'm so grateful that Domi is a nice guy, and they could, you know, maybe smile about it after. I'm not sure what's going on behind closed doors, but. In terms of the team's uh, media perspective, they seem to be okay with it. Anyway, in terms of Remy's riding, um, he has potential and he has the speed. But you know, I was watching him get passed by like people like Bassani and stuff like that, and I, I I believe he's a better caliber of rider than that, especially in the Super Pole race. You know, I remember Remy said that he's not super comfort uh, super comfortable with the softer tires yet, and that's because they're just the ones that are the furthest from the Michelins. So uh, in my opinion, in my uneducated opinion, it's just a classic case of having to adapt to a new class. I mean, obviously he is fast, obviously he's a world champion and like from a resume, he has so much more on his resume than most riders. I mean, you could argue that a Moto2 world championship is worth more than a world super sport championship yeah no I mean, doubt uh, i would agree with that and dominic Egeta with uh, remy but at the end of the day all of this doesn't matter when you are on track racing against each other and uh, dommy got the better of him this weekend but um yeah i feel like he just needs to adapt more to the class because the the MotoGP gp bike especially the ktm there is so incredibly different from yeah, anything let's not talk else about on i can't be saying the honda cbr thousands a dog when, when when we're talking about the ktm MotoGP gp bike <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it says a lot when riders in MotoGP gp say the ktm has to be ridden so aggressively in order to make them fast because all of MotoGP bikes, they are so incredibly stiff and you need to really force them in order to make them work. And when you're in this range and then stepping from the, from the hardest bike to ride to the superbike, who are obviously not as stiff and not as aggressive to ride and with different tires, different electronics, it, it takes a lot of time to, to adjust, I guess. And therefore, like, I have the same approach uh, when I watch Remy or every other rookie uh, race like I did last year uh, with him in MotoGP. It's like the results to me don't matter. What matters is track time that you gain experience and therefore it's valuable to have a wet race. It's valuable to be uh, in a race where uh, 
where there's a lot of battling, where you just collect data. The worst thing you can do is crash in the first corner and don't get this experience, don't get this data. Yeah. And therefore, I guess he um, he had a bad bad moment there in, in the super pole race. But yeah, at the end of the day, uh, we all know it's uh, Dominic Agatha's fault anyways, because uh, Remy was breaking so late because he's so fast and uh, he was just in the way. And yeah, it's it's his home GP. They have a straight named after him, so he should have let him pass anyway. And uh, yeah, so I mean... <laughs> It's classic rookie mistake by Dominic um, to break this early. <laughs> yeah. But no, in all seriousness, I mean, stuff like this happens. We've seen it multiple times in MotoGP and Superbike. Uh, it happens. Dominic Agata pushed uh, Johnny Ray out in this corner. It's just a tricky corner. But in general, I think as long as you collect all the data and uh, feed your feed your brain these these different impressions, then you will get better over time. Like the worst thing you can do is uh, is crash out in the first corner. And therefore, I don't mind him finishing, what was it, 11th in the first race or 10th in the first race? I can't remember. Yeah, he was um, in the points. Like, yeah. And uh, the second yeah, race he was, also. He was 12th in the first race. And then, yeah, I'll just go over the results if you'd like. Um, okay, so yeah, race sure. one was... Uh, Bautista, Ray, and Resgat Leoglu um, for the top three. And then uh, I'll pick out our uh, our favorites. So uh, Petrucci on the debut first race in World Superbike was in eighth, although he was penalized one position um, after the last lap collision with Xavi Vierge. And we have uh, Remy Gardner in 12th, just ahead of Domi Egeter. So that was solid points for his first attempt. And next up was the Super Pole race. Uh, Bautista again. And that kind of where that was kind of where I uh, started to think that it could be a bit of a dozer of a weekend because it was a dry race and Bautista still ran away. But um, it was Rinaldi in second, then Razgatlioglu in third, so another good podium for Toprak. Then, um, yeah, this was unfortunately the race where uh, Remy took Domi out, and um, Petrucci, uh, fresh from uh, Moto America, was in eleventh. And then in the uh, final race of the day, uh, Bautista again, P1, Rinaldi second, and then Andrea Locatelli in third, which uh, I believe is a great showing from him. He, it, it, It's his judgment year. You know, Yamaha has so many good riders. I believe Domi is probably the next best candidate for that seat. Unfortunately for Remy, you know, Domi just has much more experience on those production type bikes. Remy, you know, he might take this year, but I think GRT is a, is a great um, a great team for him to be at. Anyway, in race two, Remy finished in uh, P10, so not 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 a bad weekend. Yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, what I want what I wanted to say is I don't look at results there. I look at experience gained for a rookie. I mean, when you're a rider like Bautista, when you're a rider like Toprak, obviously you look at results. But when you're a rider like Remy, who sadly won't compete for the championship this year. Um, it's not too much about results. It's about getting comfortable, comfortable with the bike, learning, and therefore I don't mind those uh, results there. And um, when you just when you read the results there, you talked about uh, Danilo Petrucci and Javier. What did you make out of this incident? 
Petrucci was at fault, I think. A lot of people on social media said, oh, it was no one's fault. It was just um, VOH that caused the collision. But um, in the end, I believe, you know, Petrucci kind of forced him out onto the curb. And, you know, there's nowhere to go. You can't force a rider out onto the grass. I mean, he can back out, but Petrucci, um, sorry, VOH was ahead. So that's just how it rolls. And I think the one place grid drop, um, the one place position drop, sorry, is I think it's a good penalty. You know, it's not like a three second penalty, which could you drop you down like four positions. And in the end, they both consoled each other afterwards and there was a good show of sportsmanship between them. So I think no harm done. And Petrucci's still getting used to the Pirelli tires as well because Dunlops in are are a completely different beast as I think we discussed in our previous podcast about Buriram, you know, where I spoke to Petrucci and Petrucci said, you know, the Dunlops are absolute dogs of tires. They're American made Dunlops. Sorry. I know, I know Dunlop in um, EU is, they use a different compound, but in, in America on the edge of the tire, you have no confidence. You can't use it. It's so hard. It's even harder than the Michelin Moto GP tires. So you agree with the penalty? I do, yeah. I, I think it's not really a big penalty for someone who's not a championship contender. You know, if it was a race win, then I'd have to look at it closer. But just there, you know, the difference between seven and eighth is it's not really big enough for both of them to go cry about it. Because in my opinion, they shouldn't have penalized Petrucci. In my opinion, this was like a last lap incident in the wedge where... Obviously, you know better than I do that in the wet, things don't always go according to plan. And it's a lot more difficult to judge an overtake in the wet because there are a lot of more unpredictability um, coming your way. Yeah. And therefore, I thought it was, obviously, it wasn't a clean overtake, but it was an overtake where he didn't, come in there with bad intent and try to uh, to ride him off track and no, touch yeah, of course. a little bit. Yeah. So to me, this was a racing incident and obviously you don't want to encourage riders uh, bumping into each other and I see like the agenda, the whole MotoGP and uh, World Superbike um, racing is on that contact basically is not allowed and when you see like Alasius Bagaro in Thailand when when we discussed it or uh, Frankie in, in Malaysia, those are overtakes in the last, or at least Frankie in the last lap where you think, okay, let him race. But obviously there's an agenda. You don't uh, touch your opponent when you overtake him. And if you do, there's a penalty. But uh, yeah, in this case, I don't agree with the penalty at all. I didn't agree with the penalty of Frankie in Malaysia. I didn't agree with the penalty of Elaish in Thailand. So uh, yeah. Yeah, as a, as a rider, when you're out there, it's it's a little bit different. You know, if I made that pass, I'm sure I'd, I'd feel differently. But if I'm as, as a steward, you know, in World Superbike, I see that and I think, okay, well, you know, Petrucci has kind of just, thrown his bike there and it, it led to contact it was not his intention hence the only one position grid drop not a three second penalty or something more severe and in the end Lekawona sorry not Lekawona Viohe had to make great evasive action to not run off the track further 
Of course, when he came back on, they made contact again. But that larger contact was a result of Petrucci's initial forcing them off. And I think the reason that that was a okay penalty was not because of that initial contact. That initial contact is fine, and I don't think that deserves a penalty. It's just what it kind of it spiraled into, you know, forcing a rider onto the curbs. And in the wet, the curbs are, it's like a ice rink. You cannot ride on the curbs when it's wet. And then Vierge having to take major evasive action. I, I saw him turn that bike faster than I saw him turn it during the rest of the race just to stay on track. And I think to have Petrucci finish in front of him is kind of a bit of a robbery. So I think having Vierge just that one place ahead of him is is more fair. I guess this comes down to perspective. You see, if you're Petrucci, everything went fine because you didn't make him crash and yeah, exactly. everything uh, was good. If you're uh, Javi, it's like, yeah, he forced me off track. He did. Uh, it was an unfair uh, overtaking maneuver. And I mean, as you said, it's not a huge penalty. From a fan perspective, I think it's, it's not... Uh, it's not necessary to penalize those because when when you have those penalties, it's it's almost like you disencourage people from overtaking because on a motorcycle, you can't do a, a safe overtake. It's not possible. A lot of riders told me this. You can't do a safe overtake. You can't do an overtake where you're 100% sure that you won't crash, that you won't touch or whatever. And you probably would confirm this. Yeah. And, and therefore, when you know you aren't allowed to make contact in any way, and you will get a penalty if you do in a last lap situation it's it steals a little bit from the show and especially if there's no crash or whatever it's a little bit it's a little bit of a bummer you know yeah. you don't want races uh, decided by a penalty even think, if it's just eighth place yeah fair enough i i think it's more in, it's not the spirit of you know safety i think it's more of a spirit of fairness you know vierge had that position he had he had the wheel in front and then if he was that was not really an overtake it would as it was a failed overtake into a little bit of collision you know petrucci wasn't all the way past and i believe if petrucci had you know he his front wheels was ahead of viajes then for sure yeah he deserves the position even if they make contact and the same thing happens but he had yet to make a proper pass Yeah, I would like to see them uh, enforce this rule when Mark Marcus races again, so then we know they're legit. But, nah, but uh, when when, yeah. when Mark Marquez does it, it's it's different. Because <laughs> he's right. Marquez. Nah, nah. Yeah. I, I think that I think that brings us on to another good point that we should discuss about consistency within penalties, and I think um, um, it's just always it's it's never ending story, is it? Yeah, and it's it's kind of a ridiculous topic because you don't go anywhere. You use you you don't have like a base to discuss because they are so ridiculous with their penalties. You have instances like Petrucci where you have a a penalty for a very very small incident, but then also there are incidents where uh, Taka takes out. Um, takes out Banyaya and takes out Alex Rins and there's no penalty, you know? So you yeah, first I, I you believe need that's some absurd, consistency. Yeah. 
yeah, you need some consistency and then you can discuss those things because right now the discussion is pointless. They don't know themselves what they are doing and I don't really want to get into it because uh, I'm kind of sick of it by now to, to every weekend discuss the incompetence of the stewards. Fair enough, fair and, enough. Uh, yeah, but um, I mean, with the Petrucci case, I understand both sides. I understand your point of view, but I also think from a, from a fan perspective, you want to have like more, you want to have a little bit more action, let's say. And if nothing happens, nobody crashes, I'm totally fine with it. But I also was fine with the Frankie overtake in Malaysia where he pushed uh, Alesh, I believe what it was, where he pushed Alesh wide. And I mean, yeah, it happens as a last lap, but what's what's the alternative? People just riding behind each other and afraid to overtake. So you don't want to have this either. Yeah, fair enough. I, I agree with that, that we uh, as fans want to see more action. And of course, we want it to be safe, but rubbing is racing, as they say. And as a rider, I'm not scared to make contact with someone else. You know, we have brake protectors for a reason. So it, it really is just up to, you know, the riders at the top level and the stewards discretion. Yeah. And um, I would like to uh, talk to you a little bit about uh, Jonathan Ray, because like from my point of view, I never really watched uh, World Superbike, but I always knew a little bit of what's going on. And Johnny Ray is basically the Mark Marcus of uh, World Superbike. He won six titles over the last couple of years. And um, with the exception of the injury history, now he is not uh, he's not as competitive anymore as he was over the last couple of years. And what was a little bit strange to me is when... I'm, I'm I'm messing up the races again. Please correct me if I'm I wrong. I think it's race one where Domi the... pushed him wide. No, this was the Super Bowl race. In race one, in the wet, he was uh, second. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. My bad. Yeah. That's my bad. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you're messing up the races. In wet. <laughs> Which is weird with, uh, with uh, three races now. You, you, you can't say he did this in a race. You have to always uh, think which race it was. Yeah. But uh, yeah, in the Super Bowl race where Domi pushed him wide, I mean, okay, shit happens but then he wasn't able to recover anywhere and i believe he even finished behind philip Oettel. so yeah it's it's a little bit unfortunate for him and in in race two he he wasn't when you obviously compare him with bautista which was the gold standard and even rinaldi he wasn't anywhere to being competitive so what's going on with uh with johnny ray what's your impression there I think it's it's purely the bike, and as a result of that, he's lacking a little bit of confidence. You know, he wants a little bit more horsepower, and he wants um, the bikes to be a little bit more closer in uh, in terms of performance. And as a rider, you know, you, you lose your heart a little bit when you know you're on a shit box, but that's just the way it goes. So, from a ranking perspective, obviously, the Ducati is best. But where would you rank the Yamaha and the Kawasaki and the Honda? Um, I think I'll start bottom up and I'll go with BMW at the bottom. You know, that bike is, it's not doing things, especially with Scott Redding on it. I I like Scott Redding and I wished uh, he was a bit more competitive and I hope later in the season we'll see him doing better. But yeah, that BMW was nowhere in Phillip Island. 
And yeah, next up, Honda, you know, they're, they're making a good start. You know, they're starting to come back a little bit up the grid. You know, they've got two really good riders now. And I think that's what they needed to uh, get them out of their slump. And then between Kawasaki and Yamaha, in the end, you just have to say that the Yamaha with Toprak aboard it is a superior package overall. But I believe Kawasaki still has, you know, a better better engine than Yamaha. So I'll have to put Yamaha third best bike and then Kawasaki second best bike. Okay. You talked a little bit about BMW and I totally forgot about them. Yeah. Uh, what's the issue with BMW? Because obviously BMW, they have so much resources they could potentially pour into a, a project like this, but it always felt like road racing or motorcycle racing in general isn't their top priority and therefore well, it's I think a little you bit got it you hit weird. it right on the right on the head there BMW you know they have plenty of backing but their investors and their board is all car people you know they're not passionate about bike racing and in the end there's very few people in BMW in the higher ups that are fighting for more resources dedicated to BMW you know it's a miracle they even got a new bike with the M1000 and I think the biggest issue with that bike is power delivery. You know, hearing from some of the riders, they they have the engine power, but they just cannot get it smoothly down to uh, accelerate nicely out of the corners, as well as that bike being a little bit of a dog in the corners, you know, in general. So what's the point of doing it at all when you don't get the resources, when you don't get the results? It's bad marketing when you're like the... When you're, when you're a manufacturer and you're uh, listening to the Bad MotoGP podcast, you obviously don't want to be at the bottom of uh, Axel Peterson's uh, ranking. So uh, they're, pro they're probably yeah. pretty pissed BMW off BMW right are going to make some changes now. Huh? <laughs> yeah. So now what's, what's the point of it uh, when, when you are not competitive over years? I can't remember when BMW was competitive for the last time. Yeah, and I don't think... That's ever, you know, BMW, they have a big history in motorsport, but it's on four wheels, not two, you know, in um, 2012 or something, they introduced the S1000 and a lot of BMW fans. And I think it's, it's really just a bike for car fans. It, it is just that bike when, you know, some guy in his forties, he's having a midlife crisis. He wants to go buy a bike. He's, he's gonna, he's gonna buy a Ducati or he's gonna buy a BMW. You know, they don't look at, Japanese bikes for that kind of purpose and in the end it's a, it's just a street bike and they're doing it just to you know make sure people are aware and they've they brought in Scott Redding they're obviously somewhat determined to improve but they're doing it on a uh, tight budget which is unfortunate and I always uh, thought that BMW isn't serious about motorcycle racing because they never went into MotoGP even though they have this big partnership with MotoGP they have the safety car they have the the BMW bikes there and when when you go to a MotoGP race you see official MotoGP cars like the BMW MX-5 uh, standing around there and uh, uh, driving around the VIPs and BMW is very involved into MotoGP, but just not in a motorcycle, um, in a motorcycle uh, way, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's BMW, they're, in the end, they value 
just their name being somewhere rather than results at this point. When Kawasaki, they're on a much smaller scale than BMW, but you know they've had that history. And now Kawasaki all over the world are cutting investment in racing, but still they're going forward in World Superbike, and it's still, you know, it's still selling bikes. But in the end, no one's really selling as much bikes as Yamaha and Ducati right now. Yeah, obviously. I mean, there, Ducati makes the best argument for buying their motorcycle right now because they're dominating everywhere they're going and also they're dominating in the 600 class now and i found out that they have their had their first uh, race victory in in the class now since what was it 2005 or whatever and they stopped uh participating in the 600 class and then they now uh, go back with the uh, Panigale V2 and with Nicolo Borega, they got their first victory, which was strange to hear, but yeah, it was uh, it was Ducati's first victory. So yeah. um, talking about the uh, 600 class, what what do you make out of uh, out of it? Well, in the end, it's not really a 600 class when you have a du- Ducati with 955 cc of engine power yeah, going. Well, What's up with this anyways? I never really understood it. Uh, how is Ducati and back then when they had the V2 in, in in Superbike, they were able to run like 1200 uh, cubic centimeters of yeah. uh, engine capacity. And now in the, in the Super Sport class, they are able to run the basically a thousand cc bike. And while Yamaha is running the 600, while Kawasaki is running the 600, what what's up with this, anyways? Yeah, well, in the end, the um, the Ducati is they obviously have some sort of sway in Dorna's regulation changes that um, came in with the Super Sport Next Gen, and I think Moto America did it best because um the fim set out the base regulations of what the rpm limit would be for the ducati and in ducati's first season back in world super sport that rpm limit was remained like stayed constant the whole time and it was a little bit too powerful in my opinion but in moto america they made adjustments to it throughout the season based on the previous race so if it had the highest top speed they'd change the rpm limit if it had you know, a little bit lower, if they were like five kilometers an hour lower, they, you know, raise it by a couple of hundred RPM. And in the end, I think that's what needs to be done when you have a bike that's 355 CC more than some of the other bikes it's racing with, you need to, you know, really make adjustments on the fly. And you look at other bikes like the MV Augusta, and that's 765. And same with the Triumph, you know, they're, they've done a pretty good job at scaling it because if you were a first time viewer, you wouldn't be able to tell that they were different classes of bikes. But in the end, that bike with Bulliga on board is a great package now. And I mean, you look at him last year and you look at him this year and I think the R6 is starting to get a little bit old, but that Ducati's still quite fresh and, you know, he's taking advantage of that. What was uh, strange for me was the first race in the wet. Uh, where he was in 16th on the grid or whatever, I don't know. He was way, way, way behind. And then, 
I mean, they had like three or four different uh, starts there, so I can't uh, remember. Um, <laughs> That's worse all of than it. all the World Superbike I mean, races. Yeah, yeah. He had uh, so many um, qualifying. So many starts with that. Yeah, he had a good qualifying. Then he went to uh, to the back of the grid in the first spin of the race. Then it was uh, red flag or whatever, and restarted. And uh, yeah. So he was coming from way behind because uh, of unfortunate situations, but in a span of one or two laps, he was in front. And when you see Nicola Bolega getting out of um, out of the out of the starting grid, like the first hundred, two hundred meters, he was overtaking everybody because this Ducati seems to have so much more torque than everybody else on the grid, and he's exactly. just flying by them in the first. 200, 300 meters, and uh, then it kind of evens out as the race is going. But this is a huge advantage, you know. Yeah, it is. You know, to get to the first corner first, you know, especially in the wet, you have less spray, you have less riders in front of you that could, um, you know, mess you up. And especially when you're more in the pack, you're at risk of getting taken out by another incident when there's more riders around you. Ooh, sorry about that. I think my neighbors are doing something. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, Bulliger, that and his and that bike is just. I think yeah, that what you said is exactly right. The torque is just way, way, way too high because it's a it's a twin cylinder. It's a V two. You know the V two um, engine specification has always been one that has a lot of torque. You know you look at like Harley Davidson riders. They always say their bike is the most powerful bike. <laughs> when in reality, I tested a Harley Davidson and I struggled to get to one hundred and eighty kilometers an hour on the straight, even though it was a nearly a thousand cc bike but in terms of torque you know they they have torque and that's just a characteristic a characteristic of that engine type i mean when you have a formula one car and it's pulling against the truck in both direction obviously the trucks pulls the formula one car away but over a lap the the formula one car obviously is faster so i guess it's it comes down on how do you define power do you define power in a way of uh, going fast or do you define power in a way of uh, delivering power to the ground and pulling something you know yeah. in the end um the fim does have the power to reduce the amount of torque that bike has and they're yet to put a restriction on that you know you can you can measure torque on a dyno and you can limit the torque that they that the rider has by um you know increasing you know, traction control or just like slowing the amount the RPM climbs. In the end, anything with that bike like can be changed to make it more fair. And I'm surprised they haven't done that yet. I would like to talk about the differences of the engines in the Super Sport class a little bit because you have uh, the V2 and you have the inline three of the Envo Augusta. And you have the inline four of the Yamaha and the Kawasaki. Obviously, the V2 has more uh, more engine capacity, as we as we talked about, and the MV Augusta does too. But the inline four revs a lot higher, and therefore makes up for the lack of torque in a way of generating power. So the inline four generates power through revving pretty high. Whilst the um, whilst the the V two is generating power through torque and having a lot of uh, lot of force 
output. So how does this even out on a race? When, when you say, okay, you can race a 950 cubic centimeter bike yeah. versus a 600. I think they really just things. scaled it over a one lap pace, you know, in terms of lap time, they're not far off, but it's like, um, you know, you're putting a thousand CC on a, you know, large go-kart track against a 400 CC bike, you know, the lap times could be very similar, but in terms of corners, the thousand CC is going to be super slow, but on the small straights that it has, it's going to be super fast. And the lap time will in the end be the same, but you can't put those two bikes on the, the track at the same time because the difference in speed in terms of the straight and on the corner is just way too high. And when you look at something like the inline four, it's not really got a linear power band, you know, at the low RPM, it's not really got much power at all. And then all of a sudden at 13,000 RPM with the R6, it really just kicks up. And then you hear that, you know, 140 horsepower just roar out and scream. Same with the Kawasaki. Now the, uh, the triple of the MV Augusta and the Triumph, more linear power band, but still it's an inline engine and three cylinders. So they're higher revving and they don't produce as much torque, but it's sort of like the best of both worlds or maybe the worst of both worlds whatever way you sit in terms of your opinion on the inline four but then the v2 is it's just a torque monster you know it's big capacity big capacity you know each cylinder is basically a rc390 it's two rc390s in in each cylinder and the you know the piston size is about 70 millimeters so it's about 70 centimeter piston when you look at something like the Yamaha, the inline four, it's the piston size is about that big. So it's, 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 it's quite different. And that affects the, how high you can rev the bike, but also the, of course, the characteristics of the engine. So do you think that Yamaha with, uh, with Muncie on it have a shot against Bodega over the course of the season? Or is like the Ducati again too much for the Yamaha? If Domi was on that bike, I'd say no doubt. But um, Manzi has to prove himself at Tenkate. And I think I'm excited to see that. And at this point, I don't know what you're thinking, but I'm not thinking that Kanonju is 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 going gonna, is gonna to do it. I mean, I watched him in Moto3 when he had this amazing race in, in Valencia. Then he kind of went nowhere and I forgot about him a little bit. And then I watched the race. It was the first 600 uh, super sport race I basically ever watched, I believe. Yeah, I watched some highlights or whatever, uh, but yeah, it was the first real, real world superbike uh, weekend that I ever watched. And um, I thought, hey, maybe. Maybe he's good there because he was under under on the pole position after what was it, Manzi? Something happened with the with the pole sitter in one of the thousand restarts of the of the super sport race. Yeah. I can't get it together because well, A I was off Jan, Jan actually and, crashed on Jan crashed on the warm up lap for the the final warm up lap, I believe it was. And oh, he was the one who was. Yeah, he went down, no. and and it was a bit of a it was a bit of a Turkish civil war, I think, with Bahattin Safoglu, uh, Keenan's um, nephew, crashing into um, Jan. Yeah, no, I get it together. I'm sorry. As I said, no I was not asleep, and yeah, um, 
basically all he had to do was finish the warm-up lap and he was on the wet tire and at the end it was proven to be the right tire i mean the slick tire they were nowhere especially after it began raining again yeah so um i thought it has to take a lot of um I mean, it's it's always easy to to judge from the outside. I'm not on this bike, but he fucked up the warm up lap two times. <laughs> the first warm up lap, he went wide into the gravel and came back. He did crash, so yeah. But uh, in the second one, he crashed, and I don't necessarily understand how a professional racing driver on the right tire for the track when when he went out and uh, went into the gravel with the wet tire, I thought to myself, hey, he's about to change tires because obviously it's not the right tire for him if you go wide. So, but he stayed on the tire and therefore I think he has to believe that the wet tire is the right tire and he was proven to be right at the end. But um, to not even be able to complete a clean warm-up lap, I believe says a little bit about uh, the state of where he's at right now. And I mean, I don't want to shit at him because who am I to judge? You know, I, I wouldn't be able to do it anyway. So, um, yeah, but it looks kind of sus, you know? Yeah. And a uh, third time was definitely not lucky for him on in terms of warm-up laps. You know, after that moment, as a rider, I'd be like uh, pinching myself like being like get your head in the game get your head in the game take it easy on the warm-up lap definitely do not lead on the warm-up lap you know just drop behind let and just follow someone else because on the warm-up lap riders actually go maybe like 80 to 90 percent of their pace during the race so you can kind of get an idea of how hard they're going to push it especially for a wet race you know if you're struggling to keep up with them in a wet race on the warm-up lap then you know you you're definitely going to have to go harder in the race so it's 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 actually a good way to get a, a get rid of your mental block a little bit into, before wet race, but um, Jan just approached it with the wrong mindset, and um, yeah, he paid the price for it. I feel sorry for uh, the the other guy, the Sufoglu, because he had uh, he had the wrong end of the stick there and just uh, drove into his bike, and yeah shit happens when it's not even your fault and there's a lot of spray and all of a sudden there's a bike on track. Yeah, I feel sorry for him, but for Andrew, I mean, he, in order to win his first race, I guess guess he has to be a little bit more mentally stable in a way because he went to Moto3 and won his first race in the wet. So I thought, hey, he was good in the wet, so maybe he will be good in the wet too. And he had all of the ingredients to win, but he didn't for reasons that uh, he fucked up by himself. I I think he's got Jorge Martin syndrome, honestly. You know, super fast rider, but just cannot stay on the bike to win. Could be. I don't know. This was the first uh, race in Super Sport I watched uh, from him. So Yeah, he hasn't got a win yet and he's been in the class for a few years. And he's always yeah. there, thereabouts, but never can hold it together for a full race. Yeah. And I thought back in Moto3 where I was going was that he kind of lost uh, his, or got lost in his head a little bit uh, in Moto3 because he won his first race. There was a lot of pressure. Those people are like superstars in uh, Turkey where they are from. So 
I don't know what's going on there, but I feel like he needs to get his head clean a little. Maybe like Maverick, you know, on a good day, Maverick can beat everybody in the world by 30 seconds. But obviously not every day is Maverick's day and you need <laughs> to figure out how to make every day uh, your day. And yeah, yeah same with Anshu, uh, I believe, because he has all the talent in the world. He has the structure around him to be successful. But yeah. You need to complete a warm-up lap, I guess. And that that's just how it goes. You know, it's just when you see a rider make a mistake like that, you know it's not ability, it's just his head. And yeah. I'm sure Keenan puts a lot of pressure on him as well as Toprak. You know, and I, I liked your meme about it. All you have to do is finish the warm-up lap, then you'll be good. <laughs> and then, yeah, that uh, didn't go to plan. Yeah, I mean, if it was this easy, I guess everybody would uh, would win. <laughs> but yeah, it's a it's a it's a funny oversimplification, I guess. Um, what I wanted to talk to you about before I let you go, because it's like late. See, it's dark outside, right? It's late in oh, the evening. Oh yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I just got up early and have to go to physiotherapy in in an hour. So yeah, the last uh, thing I would like to discuss with you, what's going on in a rider's head when you have all this chaos in the Supersport uh, race one, where you have multiple restarts, you have different tires, you have all of this stuff. What's going on in your head? Yeah, I, I once had a race like this where, you know, it was red flagged after a few laps and then, you know, had to restart, but then there's someone stalled on the grid or something. So we had to go around again and again. And at the end, whoever can keep their head together the best will win the race. Because at that point, your preparation goes out the window. So if you're a rider that needs 30 minutes to get yourself in the zone, then you're, you're, you have no chance. You need to be able to flick on that switch. And a lot of riders who rely on adrenaline to do that are usually okay. You know, it's fight or flight. And... It is that split second, split second decision as the red lights go out that you have to, um, you know, you have to make, and your brain makes subconsciously, and that will decide where you finish in the race. And if you have the speed and talent, like the majority of the people in the super sport and superbike grid do, then all it is is just a mental battle. And I think, you know, some some therapists and psychologists should really get more involved with the GP riders and work out you know what it is that makes them able to ride so fast or why their preparation works why other preparation doesn't and i'm sure that'd be a really interesting study on that yeah i felt like they obviously nobody knew what was going on because the weather is so unpredictable especially in Phillip island you don't know will it stop raining and the drag will track will dry up or will it continue to rain um, so you basically have no clue what's going on and you can't have i mean it's uh it's basically a flip of a coin either it starts raining again or it stays dry and the sun comes out and it dries up so when you have a race with uh, people who are like on intermediates who are on wet uh on wet tires who are on slicks and then there were people i believe who mixed tires had like an intermediate front and wet rear or vice versa i can't yeah remember. other way around you man, never want to have yeah you never want to have more grip at the rear than you have at the front otherwise then you're just asking to tuck the front on the throttle 
basically the combinations that they can do in World Superbike and Supersport is they have a wet front or a slick rear, wet front and into rear or into front and slick rear. Like you never okay. want to be rolling around with like a slick front and a wet rear. That's just uh, asking for it. <laughs> Okay, yeah. So um, what I was, uh, where I was going was when you are in a situation where you know, okay, I have the let's let's say you have the slick tires or you have the intermediate tires, and you know, okay, maybe the beginning of the race I won't be able to fight for the top, but if the track dries up and I will be good towards the end, how do you keep yourself? Compose that you don't fuck it up in the first step, but also don't be too cautious and lose all of the advantage you get later on because you're like two minutes behind or whatever. And the best yeah. slick tire in the world won't help you. You know, how, yeah. what's the mental process there, and how do you keep yourself composed and do your job and not focus on the others? Yeah, well, it, it brings me back again to mental prep, but it's a different sort of mental prep. You know, if you have the adrenaline and you're on slicks and it's wet it's very hard to see, you know, three laps into the future. You know, you're only thinking about go now, go now, go now. But if you're a rider that can stay calm and stay focused, then you'll be fine. But if you're a rider that stays calm, but you're still focusing on just the corner after you, you know, then you'll just be like riding around like a grandma or something. And then all of, all of a sudden you'll, you'll see the checkered flag and you'll be in P19 or something. And it'll be very disappointing. Yeah. But in conclusion, I thought it was a fun weekend to watch. It's to me, it's still a little bit weird with uh, the many races that you have, like sprint yeah. races that you have two main races, because it's it's for me a little bit difficult uh, to to wrap everything around my head. I would have yeah. to get used to it, especially with MotoGP now. I look forward to seeing the rest of your opinions on the rest of the season. Sorry, like in my opinion, this is probably one of the worst world superbike weekends i've ever watched in terms of the racing you know I, i'd say the racing in both of the main races in superbike were pretty stale with bautista up the front barring like that battle for fourth place in race one you know i, I think that ducati needs to be fixed and by fixed i mean made slower so probably you could say broken like right now it's just not world superbike from two years ago and maybe scott redding was you know, masking the real top speed of that bike because of his 90 kilo fat ass. But <laughs> in the end, we'll never know because Bautista's, you know, 50 something kilos and he rides that like a rocket ship and he rides it well in the corners. So, you know, can't, can't stop him, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I'll look forward to the rest of the season. I mean, next weekend is Indonesia already. So uh, I'll be watching again. And um, yeah, I'm especially interested in Remy's development. Uh, I will try to go to a race this year, maybe in Aston, uh, because they have like open paddock and all of this. And it seems to be really nice to go to a, a superbike race. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for the season and maybe I will get used to it, especially with the sprint races in MotoGP. The, to me, it was so weird because on Saturday I watched the race. I was like, okay, race is good. Uh, race is done we're good uh yeah and then i thought wait there's another race tomorrow that's weird and also with the super Bowl race i mean it was really exciting until remy crashed and i was a little <laughs> bit uh, demoralized <laughs> yeah but um but it was also totally weird that you have another race coming up and the way my brain processes it is 
that it kind of overrides what happens, you know? And I um, have a really good memory on different races what happened. For example, we could talk about the MotoGP season 2022, 2021, or even 2020 pretty accurately. I get this together. But we couldn't talk about, for example, about qualifying, what happened there or whatever, you know? Because Or Moto2 and Moto3. It's a little bit weird because there's another race who overrides my memory you know yeah exactly and uh, i will have to get uh, used to it with a uh, super bike because there are a that lot happened of things, to uh, both uh, of us in that happened to both of us in this podcast as well and i think yeah you know yeah. one of it is we're rusty you know it's our first race weekend in you know three months or something like that but then again world superbike it's it's a little bit confusing and i think in moto gp you know when the liveries used to change each year, it was easier to keep track of what happened, which weekend and which year. But now with World Superbike and the bikes aren't changing colors at all for the foreseeable future, you know, where we just have to deal with it. And maybe, maybe you and I have to start writing notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, usually I'm a little bit more prepared for uh, the race reviews. Because I know what's going on in MotoGP. I watched MotoGP my entire life. I I know what's going on. I know what to talk about and what not and what's interesting, you know. But um, with Superbike, it's totally new to me. And I understand a lot of things not as much as I would like to. And I see this more of a process. And also this race review, I mean, I don't have a clue on what happened. But I feel like talking about it from this perspective is also interesting, too especially with someone like you who knows uh, what's going on or next week I have uh, somebody scheduled for the for the race review in uh, World Superbike who will give me a different point of view I really enjoy talking to different people there you know and uh, therefore I believe I will build up this knowledge and it will get better each each uh, episode and also with MotoGP I don't know what to do with the sprint races uh, I'll have some time to figure it out if I want to do like a race recap uh, separately if I want to make a weekend recap uh, where we talk about sprint races and the races or if we just do the main race and uh, tr try to boycott the sprint races because they're stupid anyways um, so yeah i don't know uh how it will how it will play out but uh yeah luckily i'll decide pretty spontaneously there but um yeah long story short i will uh i will build up more knowledge in world superbike i will get used to the more race format on a weekend and uh, maybe remember a bit more on what happened before you know yeah Anyway, um, to the to the viewers listening, and um, let me know or let us know if you'd like to see me back. Um, I, I'd love to come back, and um, yeah, let me know if I can improve. I'm I'm always learning, I guess. And um, yeah, thank thank you for having me again, and it's been great to be here. And I hope to uh, be back on soon. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, our our Thailand review, and I had in my mind like scheduled. Okay, asked uh, ask Axel for Thailand for the review again. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, we can we can do it uh, anytime you want. And 
as I said, it's it's very fun to me to talk to different people. Like I had everything moderating on the podcast and it was a totally different type of podcast. For example, it was with uh, Jack Gorse from Lorna who um, who covered the tests in, in Zipang Life. And it was a totally different conversation, but therefore I built my knowledge up from different perspectives and I really enjoy talking to different people. So you are welcome uh, on the podcast every time you want. And, Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to a fun 2023. And thank you very much for doing this, even though it was very spontaneously. But yeah, we did it uh, anyways. And see you again sometime this year. Thank you, everybody, for watching. And next weekend, there will be another one. So goodbye. <laughs>